Hey there, and welcome back to Take One, the podcast that brings you just one clear page of Talmud every day. And today's pages, Gitin 5 and 6, really, really, really want to make things clear for all of us. How? Have a listen. Come and hear, the Talmud says, as Shmuel raised the dilemma before Rav Huna, with regard to two people who brought a bill of divorce from a country overseas. Are they required to say it was written in our presence and it was signed in our presence, or are they not required to state this declaration? Rav Huna said to him, they are not required to say it. Rav Huna explained his ruling. And if these two individuals would say, testifying, she, the woman, was divorced in our presence, even without bringing a bill of divorce, aren't they deemed credible and isn't she, the woman, considered divorced? Therefore, in this case, too, they are deemed credible when they claim that the bill of divorce was written correctly. The Gemara comments, this works out well according to the opinion, stated earlier, of Rava, as the matter depends on the availability of witnesses to ratify the bill of divorce, and there are two witnesses in this case. However, according to the opinion of Rava, also stated earlier, it is difficult as he requires the additional testimony that the document was written for the woman's sake. The Gemara explains, According to the opinion of Rabbah, with what are we dealing here? He maintains that this ruling is referring to the period after the people living overseas learned the halacha that a bill of divorce must be written for the woman's sake. In other words, here are two sages sort of debating a finer point of whether or not it's just enough for two people who live overseas to testify that a woman was indeed divorced, or did they also have to witness that the bill of divorce, the get, was written for that woman specifically, as we had previously discussed. This may sound like a highly kind of intricate legalistic argument, but the Talmud here is telling us something so profound and so basic and so human. It's telling us that sometimes it takes us time to learn stuff, especially really complicated stuff, especially if we're really, really far away. These witnesses living overseas, they don't have access to the wisdom of the rabbis. They want to study. They want to do the right thing here. But it takes them a moment until the halacha reaches them overseas. So we should all be patient. Better yet, inspired by today's page and its reminder that sometimes learning takes time and repetition and reminders, and inspired by so many of you who wrote in to say that they would appreciate an explainer, a Talmud crash course, a back-to-basics sort of episode that covered some of the essentials. Our very own producer, Daron Ruskay, took charge, and he called up a very special guest for a very special episode, who's that mystery guest and what fundamentals will be covered do me a favor go make yourself a cup of coffee or tea sit back and enjoy this take one's very first talmud explainer hey there and welcome to our first take one explainer episode I'm producer Daron Ruske. As I've been working with Liel and his guests in helping to put together the Take One podcast, I have learned a lot of Talmud, something that I never thought I would do. 
I have read page after page of Talmud, trying to come up with themes that we might want to focus on and think about guests that might make this a compelling podcast for you, our listener. But as my formal training in Talmud is limited, there have always been some general concepts that are just confusing to me. When I discussed this with Liel, he thought that perhaps I was not the only one confused and that it might make sense to do these explainer episodes where we went back to the basics and made sure we started off right. And since we just began a new tractate, Tractate Gittin, this was a good time to get some questions answered. And as we always do on take one, when we have questions that we need to figure out, there is one person we always like to talk to, our dear friend, David Beshevkin. What an absolute joy uh, to be here. There's nothing that gets me more excited than talking Talmud, explaining Talmud, and opening up new doorways to Talmud. So thank you so much for this opportunity. So let's start with the basics. Can you explain to me what the difference is between the Mishnah and the Gemara? Absolutely. So the Mishnah is an earlier text. It was an edited text and normally attributed to the sage Rebbe Yehuda Hanasi, the Prince Judah. And essentially what the Mishnah is doing is that it is a compilation of all of the laws that comprise the entirety of the oral law. Essentially, when we think of the word Torah, a lot of times we associate that with the Bible, the five books of Moses, maybe the prophets and the writings. But those books don't really tell you how to apply the divine wisdom that the Jewish people have received and nurtured through the centuries to your everyday life. What is the law practically how to live your life? The first major edited compendium of all of Jewish law is known as the Mishnah. And the Mishnah was written very tersely and deliberately detached itself from the written Torah, what we would call the Bible. So it doesn't tell you where do these laws come from. It just tells you, here are the laws. What happens if your ox gores somebody else's ox? Uh, what happens if you contract ritual impurity? What blessing do you make on a host of foods, etc., etc.? But it doesn't really tell you where do these laws derive from. It doesn't extrapolate all the scenarios that it's based upon. And that's really where the Talmud enters. The Talmud is a commentary on the Mishnah. It is a running commentary that the Mishnah was compiled, let's call it, in the year 200, something like that, was finished, compiled, edited, written down. And then for the next several centuries, there were these oral discussions back and forth about how to apply these laws, figuring out how these laws are actually derived from the written Torah. It's a very messy work. It's deliberately messy because the Talmud was written, as was some of the Mishnah, but the Talmud was written exclusively in exile in Babylonia. And the work of the Talmud is kind of this chaotic work where it doesn't go sequentially. It's not like you could look up chapter and page and know exactly where to find certain laws because it's this ongoing, deliberately oral conversation. And even when it was written down, the oral character of those discussions is preserved in the text. So there are tangents. It looks like it was written by a collective that everyone had ADD. But in a way, like without the joke, like that's the world that they lived in. The world was not operating sequentially. There was no temple. There was no very clear national boundaries of the Jewish people and the Jewish land. We were dispersed. And the Talmudic text is really this miracle where all of these conversations through centuries were collected together 
to extrapolate all of the laws of the Mishnah, to explain them, to build upon them. And the corpus of the Talmud is now almost synonymous with the oral law. And the Gemara. Talmud is English for Gemara. So if you're talking to somebody from a more traditional background who maybe studied in yeshiva or in seminary, they may call it Gemara. Sometimes they'll call it Talmud. I always try to call it Talmud because it's a word that's just a little bit easier for an English speaker. But Talmud and Gemara are synonymous. And when people use the word Talmud or Gemara, they're actually including the Mishnah within it. They're not just saying just the Talmud. They're saying the Talmud that includes all of the Mishnah and the commentaries on the Mishnah. The way the Talmud is structured is, again, it's a commentary on the Mishnah. So there are six orders of Mishnah that we have. The orders, and I'll, I'll say them out in Hebrew, and then I'll translate it. The six are Zra'im, which is agricultural law. Moed, which are the laws of holidays, Sabbath, festivals, all of that stuff. Nushim, which literally means women. This is all family law. How do you get divorced? How do you get married? All of that stuff. Nezikin, there's the laws of damages. What happens if my ox, a lot of ox laws. If your ox uh, beats somebody up, you open up, you find someplace in Nezikin. Then there is Kudshim, which is the laws of kind of sanctity, ritual slaughtering, how to bring sacrifices. And then finally, Taharos are the laws of ritual purity and impurity. Now, Each of these orders has little mini books that are called tractates or mesechtas, and they divide into subcategories. So in the order of Moed, that's an easy one, you'll have a separate mesechta or tractate that deals with Sabbath, a separate tractate that deals with the laws of Passover, a separate tractate that deals with the laws of Purim and Megillah and all of that stuff. So there is a... Babylonian Talmud, which you just mentioned, and then there is the Yerushalmi Talmud. Yes, What is the difference? Great question. So after the final exile, the Babylonian exile, after the destruction of the Second Temple, most Jews left Israel. Most Jews were already living there, honestly, during most of the Second Temple period. There were a select group of Jews who remained tethered to the land of Israel. The Jerusalem Talmud was written earlier and does not have as much of the discussion in the collective bodies over the centuries that the Babylonian Talmud has. Most Jews lived outside of Israel. So we really have two Talmuds, but traditionally, most people spend much more time, I would say. Your average Jew, even who studied in yeshiva, even somebody who's a rabbi, spends nearly all of their time studying and trying to understand the Babylonian Talmud. It came after the Jerusalem Talmud, so it almost includes a lot of the earlier stuff. And the commentaries, if there are ever contradictions, will point it out, the commentaries on the Babylonian Talmud. So the Babylonian Talmud was edited much later and over a much longer period of time, which is why it includes much more and is really the focus of much more study. One of the great mysteries of the Babylonian Talmud is we aren't really told who wrote it, like in a, in a typical way. Some people attribute it to Ravina and Rav Ashi. Those were two sages who I think lived in the 4th century. They definitely were not the ones to edit it because we have the children, grandchildren, and sages who lived centuries after them in it. The editing process took place over centuries, maybe into the 9th century. And it was preserved via manuscript. It was finally first published A part of it, the more traditionally studied tractates, were initially published by Sansino, and he set up like the standard page that we're familiar with, and that was really concretized 
a few decades later in the Bomberg edition of the Talmud. And these were different editions. The Talmud page that you see now in front of you is probably most attributed. Again, it picks up pieces from all the earlier versions too, but it's probably most attributed to the Vilna edition of Shas, which was published by the widow Ram. There's a fascinating story about that, a lot of intrigue. There were battles over the copyright law because there was a different edition that the especially the Hasidic community liked much better. There were fires taking place in publishing houses and people blaming one another for trying to kill one another. I think there were even maybe a murder or a suicide involved. I mean, things Things got very ugly over these copyright battles, but the current Talmud that we open in the printed editions, traditionally printed editions, not Safaria, which is all digital, but if you open up a Koran or Art Scroll, the traditional page of Talmud is more or less the typesetting, the page numbers, all of that really derives from that Vilna Shas that was published in the mid-18th century. So now I want to go back to the question that I had started asking before we went on some really great tangents, Please, which is, is a, what the Talmud this is, is, right? A Talmudic discussion. And you, you were way. saying that the traditional page of Talmud. Now, for those who have seen it know, it's formatted in a, to the normal eye, sort of bizarre way. Yes. There's a central section. There are two Columns. wraparound sections. Yeah. And then there's marginalia. Yeah. What's going on? What's here? going on? And am I seeing all of that when I'm reading it on Safaria, or am I just getting that middle section? So Safaria is just the middle section. And there's something very beautiful because on any traditional page of Talmud, you have to understand that you are really reading commentaries that span nearly a thousand years. I'm not even talking about the Bible verses that are written there, but you have the Mishnah that's written, you know, in the early uh, first and second, third century. You have all the commentaries of the Talmud that span into the ninth century, the eighth century, depending on which scholars you ask. And then you have all the commentaries around it, and that's going to take you all the way into the 11th century, the 13th century, 14th century maybe, and then you have some of the marginalia on the side that will take you almost into contemporary times, definitely in the early modern period, modern times. Let's stick to just the absolute basics. When you open up a Talmud page, you see that there is text in the middle. The text in the middle is either the Mishnah. The Mishnah is always marked off and usually abbreviated with the Hebrew letters Mem, Tuf Nun, which is an abbreviation for Masnisen, which is Aramaic for Mishnah. And then when the Gemara begins, you'll see a little bit bolder two Hebrew letters that will usually be Gimel and Mem. That is an abbreviation for the word Gemara, which, as we said, is synonymous with Talmud. So in the middle section, you're seeing Mishnah and Talmud. What is happening to the left and the right? That is also really important. Always closer to the binding, so it depends what side of the page you're on, but closer to the binding is the beloved commentary of Rashi. Rashi, uh, Rav Yitzchak ben Shlomo, was really, I use the word beloved because Rashi is almost the original Chavruta, the study partner of the Jewish people through the centuries. He takes your hand and fills in 
all of the blanks in the back and forth of the Talmudic discussions, which is very easy to get lost on. What exactly, which opinion are they asking on right now? Is this an answer or is this a question? What Rashi is doing very briefly, very tersely, is he is explaining and filling in the gaps in what is otherwise a really collapsed conversation that took place over centuries. And really, there's something very beloved and affectionate about people's relationship with the commentary of Rashi because it's where all commentaries begin from. And Rashi kind of weaves his commentary into the text of the Talmud itself. There's something quite sad that in the middle of one of the tractates, it actually writes in the middle, Khan Mace Rashi, here Rashi died, and his commentary stops and it was taken over and continued by his grandson. Uh, Rashi is really amazing, and anybody who is learning to study the cadence, the rhythm of Talmudic question and answering, you begin by studying, obviously, the Mishnah and the Talmud, but the person who opens up those texts for the last century is the commentary of Rashi. Just to be clear, you'll notice there are two different types of script in the Talmud, there's kind of a more traditional Hebrew block script. That's the script that's used for the Mishnah and the Talmud. And then there's kind of like this very strange looking script that is affectionately known as Rashi script. That's not because Rashi specifically used that script. I think it's attributed to him because Rashi's commentary was always printed in that script. And there are some obscure reasons for why people deliberately wrote in that Rashi script. One of the more basic reasons is because there are a lot of laws affiliated with writing proper Hebrew, the Hebrew font that we're most familiar with. And in order to avoid perhaps some of the more stringent laws of how careful we are when we write in that classical Hebrew font, some people were careful that they use kind of a a different font to highlight the oral character of what they're writing uh, so it's not confused, so to speak, with like the biblical font. This is great. I want to go into a set of questions that are really about kind of some of the language that you and Liel and our other guests have used and that I just need a glossary. What is a baraita? It's a great question. As I mentioned before, the Mishnah represents kind of this edited classic collection that represents all of the oral law. So anytime, if you've ever written something, when you edit, there are collections, there are maybe other ideas that get cut on the cutting room floor. So the Brightas is a parallel collection that look very similar and read very similar to the Mishnah, but was not canonized and accepted in the same way that the Mishnah was. So while they are very authoritative, when the Talmud is having a discussion and says, well, the Brita says this, the authority of the Brita is almost always trumped by the authority of the Mishnah because the editing of the Mishnah and its attribution specifically to Judah the Prince, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, kind of trumps all as the final word of the accepted oral law. But there were other traditions and collections of oral law, including a Brita, that we still have and that are oftentimes quoted within the Talmud. And a sugya. A sugya is literally like a topic. So somebody might say, where does the Talmud discuss this sugya? It's almost like a colloquial word. I don't think the word ever actually appears in the Talmud. It's like yeshiva parlance. They might say, what sugya are you involved in? I'm trying to use it the way a yeshiva student would use it. Somebody who's studying in seminary, yeshiva in a Beit Midrash. They might say, 
uh, what sugya are you learning? What they're actually asking is they don't want to know what tract you're learning. They don't want to know what order you're learning. They want to know specifically what's the topic of your involvement. You know, if you think in terms of like American law, you might say, I'm involved in the sugya of copyright law. And that sugya might include certain Supreme Court cases, certain legislation, and it's like a collection of different topics that are all not all necessarily in one place, but are all bound by one general topic. So when people say a sugya, they're talking about what's the Talmudic topic that you're involved in now? And a tosefta? A tosefta is another collection Similar to the Mishnah and Abraita, another collection of oral law that's important. And there are commentaries on the Tosefta. Usually the Tosefta almost mimics parallels word for word a lot of what we have in the Mishnah. Sometimes there are variations in which many commentaries on the Tosefta or on the Mishnah might point out those variations. In a recent episode, you talked about how Sota had both Agada and Halacha. Can you explain these terms a little bit more? Absolutely. So the word halacha literally means to walk, like hiluch in Hebrew. To be holech is to walk. Halacha is the word that we normally associate with the actual law. What do I do in a certain situation? Where do I go? Like, give me the directions. How do I get there? Somebody wants to know. They ask you, you know, how do I get from 28th Street to Midtown? Where do I go? So you say, Hey, you make, Siri. <laughs> yeah, you make, you make a left over here. You make a right over. It's the instructions. Halacha is associated with the actual instructions of how to practice the law. The agada, which literally means to speak, to tell over, is the personality, the character, the theology. So if somebody were to say, how do I get there? And you say, make a right, make a left, and then you'll hit the Empire State Building. The agada might be, so to speak, the scenery. So on Broadway, you want to check out this spot. There's a bodega over here. There's a famous uh, sign over here. There's a statue over there to get the sights and sounds and almost the meaning of New York City. You don't get the meaning of New York City just by getting directions from somebody. You get the meaning of New York City by all the stories. Somebody might tell you, oh, there's a funny story of one time I was walking in Midtown. So the Talmud is really an integration of Halacha and Agada. Halacha is the strict law. Agada is the theology the stories, the personality, and the character. These are usually, when they're studied, a lot of times people like skip over the Agada because it doesn't carry as much maybe focus or seriousness, scholarly seriousness as others. Uh, I like that part more, I think. Yeah, they're you deliberately know. integrated together. You cannot understand Agada without understanding the Halacha, and you cannot understand Halacha without understanding the Agada. To just tell somebody stories of Midtown, and he's never been there and doesn't know his way around, does not know Midtown. And somebody who just knows the directions but doesn't know any of the stories, the sights, the sounds, the personalities of the city certainly does not really know the city. And in a similar way, the universe of Jewish ideas, of Jewish tradition, are comprised of two things. We have a tradition, which is the directions, what do you do, how do I get there? And then we have the personality, the character, the stories that are handed over, the theological ideas that really animate a lot of those directions, and that is typically called Agada. You explained the Mishnah, but is that different than the Mishnah Torah? Yes, that is a very easy misnomer. 
The Mishnah, again, is the collection that was written by the scholars that are known as Tanaim. Those were the early scholars that date to the early 1st and 2nd century. Most of them in Israel. The Mishnah is written in a proper, beautiful Hebrew. The Mishnah Torah is written nearly a thousand years later by Maimonides, otherwise known as Rambam. There is a quite a bit of history of why he called it Mishnah Torah. Mishnah Torah, which literally means to repeat the Torah. The Rambam called it the Mishnah Torah because he had hoped that this magisterial collection, and he mimics the Mishnah in a lot of ways, as opposed to the Talmud, which is written in Aramaic, unlike the Mishnah, which is written in Hebrew, the Rambam chose the language of the Mishnah and not the language of the Talmud. The Rambam basically wanted to take all of the discussions that took place over the centuries of the Talmud and give you the very bottom line of all of the Torah, and he felt this work will be so authoritative, so comprehensive, that it could replace, so to speak, all of the prior discussions of the Mishnah and the Talmud. And like this could be your one-stop shop for everything. Now, it actually— Cliff notes. Not even the cliff notes. Like uh-huh. This is just like your collected set of the oral law that you place on your shelf. It actually backfired on the Rambam of his original intention of like replacing and being the one-stop shop for all of the oral law in such a beautiful Talmudic way— And that is all of the commentaries on the Rambam created almost a secondary subculture of Maimonidian interpretation and commentary where they try to understand how the Rambam derived his laws from the Talmud. As I mentioned earlier, the Mishnah doesn't explain where it derived its laws from the Torah. It just gives you the blanket law. The Rambam operated in a similar way. He doesn't tell you what page, tractate, chapter he is deriving his laws from within the Talmud. So there is this entire subculture of Maimonidian interpretation, interpret the works of the Rambam, which almost created, rather than being the last word in oral law, it created almost a secondary culture of oral law, interpretation, commentary, discussion, disputes that really have enlivened Talmudic discussions for the last 1,000 years since it's been published. Wow. This has been amazing. I look forward to coming back to you for more episodes of this as we go along. I must say that when I dropped out of Jewish day school in fifth grade, I never thought that I would then spend my life reading Talmud almost every day now and listening to you and learning from you. This has been amazing. It is only the tip of that iceberg. And thank you for taking this time to give us a little bit of an explainer. My absolute pleasure. has been Take One. If you enjoy the show, and I hope that you do, then you're going to enjoy our brand new Take One newsletter even more. Each week, you'll get an extra shot of Talmudic wisdom straight to your inbox. And for those who sign up before Tractate Gittin ends, we'll be raffling off some Take One swag. So make sure to subscribe at tabletm.ag slash Take One Newsletter. As always, please go rate and review Take One on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts, and you could get your Take One t-shirts, mugs, and other amazing form of swag at tabletstudios.com. 
Each week, we will be releasing new episodes Monday through Friday, covering the entire weekly portion of Daf Yomi. Take One is a Tablet Studios production. The show is hosted by me, Leah Leibowitz, and is produced and edited by Daron Ruske, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. Our team also includes Stephanie Butnick, Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, Courtney Hazlett, and Tanya Singer. For more information, go to tabletmag.com slash take one or email us at takeone at tabletmag.com. You could find us on Twitter at takeone.fiomi or join our Facebook group by searching for Take One Podcast. I hope we have made your day a little more Talmudic.